0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors, and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Charlie Hodgson, former England rugby player and Saracens number 10, and founder of Charlie Hodgson Performance, his leadership coaching business. As a professional rugby player, Charlie achieved pretty much everything you could want to over his 16-year playing career. He won multiple Premiership titles with his club Saracens, he played for England, and he went on the 2005 Lions Tour. If that wasn't enough, he is also the all-time record point scorer in the Rugby Premiership, with 2,625 points to his name. As I've said before on this podcast, I am a huge believer that you can, and should, learn from the best, regardless of their industry, and sport is no different. Given the hyper-competitive nature of elite sport, teams are always looking for an edge. And given Saracen's success over recent years, it was fascinating to sit down with Charlie and get his first-hand insights and advice on what led them to be so successful. Since retiring from professional rugby, Charlie has combined his experience of developing winning teams at the top level of elite sport with his coaching training and launched Charlie Hodgson Performance to help executives and their teams leverage the leadership principles from professional sport to develop their own high-performing cultures. Charlie shares so many fascinating insights from both his sporting and business careers in this interview, and we cover a range of topics, including how his club Saracens were able to go from a mid-table side to the best team in the league, and the off-field changes that they made behind the scenes that were critical to this success the importance of developing a positive and supportive culture in your organization, and the key elements to consider if you want to develop your own high-performing team, how you can break down barriers between different areas of your business and start to help your team work together better, and much, much more. It was great to sit down with someone who has spent so long at the top of elite sport and learn what it takes to succeed at that level, both individually and as a team. There's so much in this conversation that you can apply to your career and your business and I know you're going to get a lot from what Charlie has to say. So without further ado please enjoy my conversation with Charlie Hodgson. Charlie welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So really looking forward to this conversation and learning all about what you're doing now and just getting that knowledge from your 16 years as a professional rugby player. I actually want to start there with your your rugby, because I think it leads us quite nicely onto what you're doing now. And one of the sides of that is actually the the mental side of the game, because anyone who watches it can see the, the physicality of it. But there's that mental side that must be so important. I'd be fascinated to start with actually How important that was and what you did for it throughout your career to keep yourself at the top of the game for so long?
1: How how important was it? Well, certainly very important for me. I think when I first started playing, I don't think I really appreciated what I was getting myself into. My development from school to university to professional rugby to playing for England was certainly from leaving school to playing for England was like just over two years, really. But certainly from signing my first professional contract to then playing for England was best part of 15 months so Mm. I think I certainly know now that I was I was very naive to the whole thing and what I was what I was really involved in I genuinely didn't really have a feel for how this professional environment and professional sport really worked for me it almost felt like I was still having a kick around with mates at the weekend and it, and it, it genuinely felt like that but because things changed quite quickly from from starting and then representing England and then kind of what came with that and that they had a pressure of, of playing on the international stage. Uh, I think when I was certainly, and then certainly from, from experience of playing in games where I, I probably did let pressure get to me more, I certainly needed help. I needed to, to work out, okay, well, how do I start to deal with this? Because certainly what I'm doing at the moment is not working. And so I, I, did, I did seek a bit of help. Some of it was a bit of trial and error. Well, in fact, most of it was trial and error. Say things, regret saying them. Put yourself in situations that you, want, that you don't want to be in, but you're in them and you're kind of learning basically through mistakes. But yeah, thankfully, sort of came out the other side and perhaps that's what gave them my resilience later on yeah. to my career.
0: And to that point around, some things worked, some things didn't. Looking back, what were those things that did work? Or what were the, those things that really did help you, you know, solve those challenges you had at the time you did?
1: Well, I suppose there's... There's a lot around how do people how do people become more resilient how do people deal with stress how do people react to negativity and i suppose for me the the first thing i i could do was surround myself with people that i trusted and i wanted to be around and, and gain support from them uh there were at times certainly in the rugby environment you would always question whether if i'm saying something is it going to affect my position on the field will i get picked will i not get picked so you have to there were times when you'd sort of withdraw yourself from that. But certainly my wife now, and well, she was my girlfriend at the time, and our wife, the support that she gave me enabled me to sort of recover from those situations. And then and then it came down to little things like um, positive reinforcement affirmations and whether that was constantly telling myself in, I suppose, in preparation for a kick, I'm still looking at the ball. There were last few minutes, last sort of second reminders that I would tell myself. But also, I'd, I'd do little things that I would have a sheet of paper on my mirror in the bathroom, so I'd see it every morning and every night, and it would have positive words of affirmation again, just to give me that sense of confidence again, particularly
0: when you go through some really bad times. Towards the sort of the latter part of your time in rugby, what, what did you find yourself passing down to some of those younger players in terms of those recommendations? Was it encouraging them to to do similar, or you know maybe? It, was it actually not about the mental side at all? Was there, you know, is actually that the, the smaller side of the sort of overall, you know, being able to have such a long career in the game?
1: Uh, I don't know whether you can necessarily tell, uh, tell people what they should or shouldn't be doing with regards to that. I think that the majority of stuff that I had with the younger ones was, a, was around career development and around agents and who to work with, who not to work with, should they have an agent, do they need an agent? Kind of that stuff that advice that you don't really know and you don't really learn about until you're actually immersed in it, and that that whole agency world for me is is not a very nice one because there are so many agents out there who can you trust and who can't you trust and I, th- I certainly think the younger players are coming to me for advice around around what to do with that because it's not it's a bit of a murky world, and it's not really people aren't really too sure about how to deal with it. I'm not saying that I'm an expert, but the longer you're in the game, you, you see and you hear a bit more about who does what and He's more effective than others.
0: I think thinking about that on-field side, because I mean, playing top-level rugby for 16 years, and I mean, you tell me, but the game has changed quite a bit in terms of pace, in terms of size of players over that time. Actually, what was it that enabled you to stay at that level? Because you're turning out for the Premiership final, sort of 34, 35. How did you keep yourself at that level, and how did that change as as you got older?
1: I suppose first I'd say having good people around you. There, I was very fortunate to one to play in good teams, but two to be supported away from the rugby side. So when you think about nutrition, you think about physiotherapy, doctors. Like the medical support was pretty impressive when you think about it and the treatment that you get. And ultimately, you've you've kind of got you've got one job and it's to get back on the field at the weekend. And my drive, I suppose, it comes down to that one and. The attitude and the drive and determination that I had never never disappeared. It was the same from when I started playing rugby at nine years old to when I finished playing at 36. So for me it was a combination of having good people to support me and help me but uh, this internal sort of determination and motivation to, to keep me going because some of it comes from you taste a little bit of success mm-hmm. and you want a little bit more and you want a little bit more and that's what Kept driving me on, I think.
0: One of the things that I think for anyone who watches rugby, but any sport, whatever it might be, is the importance of that culture and having a good team around you. Because there's some people might infer good team into good players, but actually, like we were talking about, you look across the Premiership, take rugby for this, there's a lot of teams with great players, but there's two teams who are doing a lot better than others. You know, Saracens have one of the big things that pundits say is, is due to their success or is or why they've been so successful is because of that culture how important was that when you were there and what were those key elements that enabled it to be so successful
1: there are loads of different aspects to for, to a culture being successful or not i guess the difference uh, firstly was that it was constantly led by the, the senior management also the, the coaches and the head coach and the ceo who's who there at the time they were sticklers for the values that were set and the behaviors that they expected of us. And we, we expected of each other and we were judged on those. So yes, it's a results driven industry, but everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to win the premiership trophy. Everybody wants to win the European cup. So there has to be something else. And we were always judged around the values that were set. And when we were reviewing games and we had feedback on games, a lot of it was based, yes, of course, there were some finer details around the performance, but certainly if we lost, a lot of it came back to the values that have been set out. And ultimately they're attitude based, they're behaviour based. They're like you say, you get to that level and everybody is roughly has the same ability. So there has to be something else that, that sets you apart. And of course, the attitude side is is one thing. But secondly, I think a lot of it comes down to the actual cohesion of of the team. Not only from the playing group, but from the coaching group as well. And if you look across All sport, the most successful teams tend to be the teams that have had core group of coaches that have been there for a long time, and they've helped develop the culture, the players likewise, but also when the coach goes, he decides to go, there's a succession plan from within as well. So they understand what it takes to be at that level as well. They understand the culture to suddenly have somebody come in from a different environment and bring in what they want to do, but they don't quite understand what they're getting into. It can change things in an instant. And I think that's the difference, certainly when you look at the likes of Saracens and Exeter, who've certainly for the in the recent times have been the most successful teams, they have a stable playing group and a stable coaching group. And that's the only way you can build a culture because it takes time to build. You can't just
0: create it overnight. How do you then maintain that? You mentioned the senior management, a key there, because I'm just seeing one of the you know, even within Saracens and the next you know, new players come in, other players retire or move on. And you know, the other side is also academy lads come in and actually you then presumably got the added, might not be a challenge, but that differing age. You know, you were mid sort of early thirties and you got other lads coming in at 18, 19, 20. How, how do you, whether it's the player group or the, the coaching staff as well, maintain that culture to, to keep you know, that success going?
1: Well, a lot of it is due to, to senior players in particular, setting a good example. And so when you, when you're looking at training and it's the senior players that are leading the way in in the, in the behaviors that they expect, it's only natural for the younger ones to see that and aspire to be like that. If they see that there's some sloppy behavior, that things aren't being done correctly, then as for them, it's, it kind of gives them the green light to be that way as well. But interestingly, you talk about the academy and we talk about succession. Quite often there, there's a, a divide between the academy and the senior group, and you have to earn your stripes to get into that senior group. And of course, through performances, you have, you have to do that, and you, you're judged a lot by it, and rightly or wrongly, you're judged by your peers in that, in that sense. But certainly for my time at Sarries, that divide was broken immediately. So as soon as the players join from school, they are training with the first team. They do everything with the first team, because they get to learn what it's, what it's like, and then they get to see the level that they should be at rather than being the best players in the academy group and then going, right, you get promoted now. And then suddenly they go, shit, this is a different level completely. They get thrown into it straight away. And if they do have to try and survive ultimately in the first few months because they, they hit pre-season and I don't think they really understand the impact and how tough it can be. But the sooner they're thrown into it, the sooner they're immersed in that environment, the quicker they can come up to, they're up to speed with what's expected.
0: Thinking about some of the sort of off-field side, because the other thing that, you know, for the small amount I do know about Saracens, another, another thing that's regularly quoted is all the, the trips that the players go on as sort of team building. And what are some, and it might be that, there might be others, what were some of those off-field elements that really helped reinforce that culture and that team dynamic?
1: Ultimately, it was about trying to create an environment where people are so close that they would almost go to the ends of the earth for other people in the group. And you can liken that to family. You, you would go to the ends of, earth, end, ends of the earth for your family. So they wanted to create an environment that would try somehow to be similar. And the only way you do that is by spending time in each other's company. And of course, there is a lot of talk around the trips and, and what they do. But I suppose there's a method behind that madness. And it is to create deeper bonds between people. But you talk about the older players and the younger players. I suppose when you are training every day and you're immersed in that sort of playing environment it's very difficult to take a step back and actually get to sit down with the younger guys and go all right tell me a bit about yourself and what makes you tick and what's what your drivers and all that sort of stuff and you don't really get to do that when you're so focused on the game of the weekend and because obviously rugby you've got a game every weekend so you're constantly thinking about what next so there are very rare opportunities to actually do that so the this whole point was Let's go away together let's spend time in each other's company away from rugby we don't have to talk about rugby let's just start to break down those barriers of perceived hierarchy between the older ones and the younger ones and between the coaches and the younger ones so it was the players that went away the coaches came with and it was just like we were, we're one group we're not we're not us and them as coaching the playing group we're not us and them as an older, older group and a younger group we're going to come together and we're going to spend time together because I need you to have my back at the weekend and you need to make sure that I've got your back at the weekend as well. So, and the only way you do that is by earning trust and you earn trust by spending time with people a lot more and understanding them and having a deeper connection with them.
0: It's funny The one of the companies I used to work for did exactly that in that, every year we went away for a, a weekend and I'd like you highlight the, the bond you build and the, the excitement round that, you know, I'm sure your guys had it as well. That sort of the trips coming up. So you talk about that, you have the trip, the trip, you know, happens, you've got the stuff to chat about there. And actually that connection in, you know, because a team, you know, sports team or a business is a team. And actually that, that connection you build is critical. I'm interested on, because you obviously, you played in for the Saracens, you played for Sale. You also played for England. You, you went away with the Lions. And actually, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, is that strikes me as a, A different dynamic again because you're you know your week in week out team you you play for every saturday you're training weekly you build that connection with someone something like england or something like you know particularly the lions short sharp intense you know very similar to sort of a project in a business context how did that differ when it came to actually bringing that team together and and what for you in those teams you're involved in separated the the best ones from the from those that didn't quite work as well,
1: but I don't think it's—I don't think it's very different when you're looking at um, certainly the, from an England point or an international point of view. Anyway, mm. forgetting the Lions, put that to one side for a second. The international teams that have been most successful are the ones that have been together for a long, for the longest. England, when they won the World Cup in 2003, that team had been together for years and they'd been through good times and bad times together. The All Blacks—they have very few players that leave that environment. If they do leave, they leave. Because it's a retirement, basically or serious injury, but that whole succession and the fact that that group have been together for so long enables them to build up that understanding that they need where it it hasn't necessarily worked from my point of view is then when you look at the international stage again, it's those times when you go from competition to competition where your team could change dramatically, and there'd be moments when I might play with a different scrum off or a different center partnership so given everybody comes from, from the 12 different clubs, all, they all want to play in a different, um, different way. How do you make this team more aligned when, when you have only come together for a short period of time, you don't really know them very well, yet you're all trying to achieve the same thing and all, all believe that what you're doing at your club is the way forward? And how do, you, how do you deal with that? There's a time in 2008 when a New Zealand tour, we were still discussing the way the team should play the day before we played New Zealand. This is like, embarrassing. <laughs> I was playing at fly half. I'm the one that's supposed to control things. We had quite a big group from Leicester, quite a big group from Wasps. At the time, probably two of the most successful teams. And then you had Mike Tindall who was at Gloucester who was a captain who basically chose because he liked the way at Gloucester playing. I'm kind of going, hold on a second. There's only one player from Gloucester here and yet you've got their final say. So like I say, this this whole thing was just a bit embarrassing that um, we were still discussing how that, how that was going to work. And But it, it it came down to alignment. We weren't, we weren't in a position to be aligned. Uh, yes, we all wanted to win, but we didn't have the right processes in place to, to get what we wanted out of it. And it, it was, as you'd expect, we got battered the following day.
0: <laughs> and it, It's that point, actually, because uh, there's a really interesting part there, which is you know, equally applicable in, this, in the business world of sport, which is, okay, you all, you know, the England set up, like you say, the 2003 team, they, they played together a lot. But just to that anecdote you just shared there, they, you know, Part of the challenge must be bringing together the players who have spent time in clubs who have very different cultures. So, you know, I, you'll know a lot better than me, but you know, Saracens have a very different culture from Wasp, very different culture from Leicester. And actually, how do you overcome that to, like you, you know, to that example, actually get everyone on the same page with even before you decide how you're going to play, how you're all going to turn up and have the conversation to decide how you're going to play?
1: I think ultimately that's set up by the. The leadership group, then, by the by the coaches and by the senior management, and it's having a strong enough senior management to see the difference and to appreciate the difference as well. Appreciate that people do come from different environments, but appreciate that there are strengths from both. And it's like, how do we use those to to be as effective as possible? For my time, it's I suppose like if you compared it to business, really, the the the, the leaders, the, I suppose, the more, more successful um, organisations are the one that have good leadership groups initially, because then it filters down to everybody else.
0: That point around the leadership, because I think there's, it does take us onto the business side quite nicely. And obviously what you're doing now around exec coaching and and developing high performance teams, be it in sport or be it in your, your work now, what are some of those common mistakes that you see when people are trying to develop a high performing team? What is it that sometimes you see people doing wrong that just means it doesn't quite hit the mark?
1: The biggest thing, across any any industry of something from sport to business as well, it's creating an environment that that you are comfortable with as a as a leadership group and not necessarily trying to force it or copy somebody else. Create something that you aspire to have. Something that's great much greater than I suppose the financial gain, but this this whole purpose of of something that is um that really impacts everybody. And if organisations don't have that, then I think they're going to be—they're the ones that struggle most.
0: This might lead us onto the business side. So, so take this as either your, your clients you advise now, or, or from the, your time in rugby. But people can look at good cultures and they sort of—they can pick out all of the component bits that have created it. We've talked about some today, but actually, if you have a culture that you would say is broken, or you know, I know you recently read an article about toxic behaviours, and you have those there in your team or your organisation actually those steps to fix that culture. And I'd be really interested in, you know, take a Worcester, they've been bottom of the table, they've been, in rugby terms, not performing well, or take a, a business example. How, from your perspective, can you start to turn that culture? You know, is it just changing the, the people? Is it changing the leadership? Or is it, you know, something softer than that? I can't
1: necessarily speak from experience of, I mean, I've, I've been part of that. I can't really say that I've helped lead that, that process. I suppose, with the way it worked at, at Saracens, they were underachievers for a long period of time, certainly when for my time in Sale. Saris always flattered to deceive, really. it's They had a, a team full of great players, and perhaps some were some real international superstars, but never quite seemed to, to be competing for honours, which you kind of look at and think, well, you, you probably should be. And rightly or wrongly, in 2010, they changed everything and turned upside down. They got rid of 15 players, had meetings with people, I think they called it Black Monday, so they had meetings with all the squad, but they were told whether their future was part of the club or whether it wasn't. And I think about 15 players left. And they obviously brought, they replaced those at, their, at the start of the following season. And a lot of that, I come back to this, the whole values and behaviours again, because a lot of the reason why they chose those players was based around the values that they chose, that they selected. And if people didn't have those that and behave in those ways then it's kind of like thanks very much you're not part of this group anymore in effect they changed it overnight and from a sporting point of view i suppose you can do that from a business point of view you certainly can't rip up people's contracts or i mean probably could but it'd be very expensive that process takes a lot longer to be able to implement but it changed because the, the focus changed from being worrying about winning every single week to thinking about process and about value-based environment as opposed to purely resource driven.
0: I don't know if there were this group is an example of it, but there there is a tension be it business be it sport that like you've highlighted that that value side is like you say so important but then there comes a question and maybe it isn't that you know we don't mind if we don't win the season of what if the player who doesn't share the values of the club is actually one of your top performing players and you're the know, same in business what if your top salesperson is actually not the you know not a good cultural fear I think Help me. This was before your time with Sarri's, wasn't it? So you might not have known the players, but actually, how important is it to make that decision based on values versus just purely performance?
1: What's the saying is that "whole is greater than the sum of its parts" and like that. So you can have people who are who may seem to be the most effective people on the outside, but if they undermine what you hold important as as, as a greater entity, then ultimately that will have a long term effect on, on overall performance. And yes, he might be or she might be doing unbelievably well, but it also may be undermining everybody else within within that team or within that organisation. So if you think if they're not there, what will be the impact? What will be the positive impact if you've got everybody working together as opposed to just sort of being a a lot more
0: selfish? How do you find now working in the the business world? How different are that sporting team dynamic from a a business team dynamic? What are those things that I guess are are the same versus what are some of those things that you found is just completely completely different
1: the difference certainly the difference and i even joke with a friend of mine as well who retired at the same time so the first thing is is feedback so certainly from a sporting environment feedback's weekly if not daily you can evaluate training you can evaluate performance there are stats available for you to look at and it's very quick to see whether something's been done well or not and he left the rugby environment, being used to that, to so then starting, starting work in the financial world, asking for feedback every week. And his immediate boss was kind of going, will you just leave me alone? <laughs> and I think it took some adjustment to get used to the fact that it's not quite the same. You might have to wait a year to even get any sort of feedback from somebody, well, decent feedback. So that was the one thing. And that's, I think that's the biggest difference, that the more that people can be told how and, and helped with stuff, the greater that impact can be. If you're waiting constantly to, to know mm. whether you've done something well or not, or how to do something or how to do something better,
0: you're just delaying the
1: whole process. And as, as I suppose that is another difference in the rugby side is that you talk about feedback. You can make decisions immediately and things can get changed immediately. And you see it, you, and you see the immediate impact of those, of those changes as well from week to week. So it's, it's very different. I must admit, it's very different.
0: Just on that feedback point, is that different in the sporting world from a business world? And if so, Do you what, I, don't, to
1: it? I don't think so. I think um, I, was, I was shocked. I'm um, going to keep talking about Saracens, but I was shocked actually when I arrived at the club how positive the environment was. And that was from a team point of view or from an individual point of view when you're receiving feedback. If you're talking about meetings, if we'd lost a game, you kind of sit there thinking, why are they being so positive about this performance? Like, because it, I suppose it comes back to the values, they're rewarding, what they would like to see as opposed to things that don't happen or mistakes that have been made keep I keep digressing and keep going off in tangent.
0: No, that's I, I usually warn guests that's something that I, I might do. But that no that but that positivity I think is a really interesting point because you can easily pick up on the negative or pick up on the positive. And actually it sounds like with yourself and Saracens that the key differentiator was focusing on that positivity And actually, you know, okay, you lost games, okay, you know, you missed tackles, kicks, etc. But focusing on what you did well and what you can build on. Because I think so often in I, I can only talk from the business world, but you can tell me from sport as well. You get people who focus on fixing what's broken as opposed to maximizing what's, what they're good at.
1: Ultimately, people don't intend to make mistakes. And that whole upskilling and increase of knowledge only comes with help and with time. So if you start beating people up over something and the mistakes all the time, then it, it forces them to, I suppose, go into their shell and not want to make brave decisions or... Do things that might be beneficial because they're almost frightened of the repercussions. I know there's obviously research out there around the positive to negative of of exchanges. From I think it started in, in marriages, but actually then was developed into organisations. I think it was Gottman wasn't it, and then Goldman and Gottman they talk about f- having at least five to one positivity to negativity. And if you if you are constantly in the negative or constantly beaten down because you didn't do something well, then of course it's going to have an impact on your performance because you're not going to make any decisions that that Ultimately, could have a could have a benefit to what you're doing to performance, but for the sake of for being frightened of making that choice because you don't know what's going to happen, it's ultimately the risk, isn't it? And people don't like that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a powerful point that that transcends both sports and business is that feeling comfortable to try something without going and checking first, because you know in a, I've seen so many clients, and you know, it's it's a problem I'm sure you see as well where people are afraid to do things unless they go and check with their boss or their boss's boss, you know, you, the larger companies get, you tend to find, you know, more committees and, and more structure around that. It's actually, was it simply that positivity element that made the switch at Saracens or what else did the management of the team do to, to get the team comfortable with, you know, on a Saturday, 15 guys on the field, actually having that freedom to, to try things and not, not be fearful if, you know, it doesn't come off.
1: Yeah. So that, it came basically down to something called effort errors and skill errors. So if, if you make a skill, if, if there's a skill error like a missed tackle or a drop pass or poor pass, because it's a skill that has to be picked up by the coaches, it's the coach's responsibility to make you better at that. So you can't be criticised for that. The effort error is you, it's your responsibility. It's a, it's a personal choice to work hard, for example. And you're responsible for that so the coaches can come down on you quite hard. So when you are, and it comes down to, as I say, it's a choice, isn't it? You can choose to work hard or not you can't necessarily choose to know something because you might not know it. And so that's what they're saying is that the coaches were the ones that have that knowledge that they can implement it into the players. And then it's up to you to go out on the weekend and just give everything you can in that performance. And if you make a mistake, then you make a mistake. It's, mm-hmm. We're not going to criticise you for that. With regards to the feedback, it was, all, it was always a case of this is, this is what we did. And with the help of some of the senior players as well and with the group, the players would be asked, okay, well, what could we do differently here? And there was never, uh, of course, I've had times through my career when you have coaches saying, yeah, that was terrible and that was terrible and that was terrible. But the shift was different because it was, there was no reflection of the negativity. It was, well, what do we do to make this a better situation? Can we change it by behavior or can we change it by upskilling the players in, in X, for example?
0: Part of that sounds like it requires a bit of humility and empathy from the management team because actually it's that point around skill errors. The whole premise sounded like the management team said, look, we haven't given you the skills to do that and I think that's a it sounds like a really nice way of approaching it because you know, be interested in your take but I think sometimes you see the opposite of you, know, you mentioned it in your article of blaming and saying oh yeah you didn't make the tackle because of you as opposed to skills I mean how important was that in the success at Saracens and also what you do now with with businesses yeah it's
1: just differentiating between the person and the skill or the ability to be able to do that isn't it and whether it's sport, whether it's business, having people to learn from and to be, and I suppose, be guided by and helped along that journey of development is, is paramount to, to getting better. So coaching from a sports or business side of things is, is no different. You, if you really want to see the best out of people, then you have to help them and not just expect to have the finished article because it's never going to happen. And even the higher up you go, people still don't know everything. You can still get better at something. And so it comes back to the whole humility side of things is accepting that you may need a bit of help. And it's and it's perfectly fine to ask for help as well. Because some of the best ideas might actually come from the people who work lower in the organisation. And if you actually ask them, you might find them, find out what they are. But it's, it's almost that it becomes this issue of pride. People don't want to ask. They don't want to show face that it's like, oh, I, I don't really know what I... i'm talking about or i'd like to know a bit more Mm. and actually if you just ask the question
0: you open up an immediate or you reduce those barriers between people is that tension more pronounced in a sporting environment in that you know in if you take your typical business there's, there's a hierarchy and due to the pace that business goes at you're not likely that the person below you is going to take your spot next saturday whereas in a sporting environment that you know that could conceivably happen did you ever see that tension arise where the, the more junior you know number two didn't want to challenge number one or vice versa number one didn't want number two in their position challenging them and actually how did the team overcome that if it did ever become a challenge i don't know what to say i don't no, know if it what did. always
1: happens quite often if a team's picked in the week and then you've got like the the subs or the, the non-playing group playing against them there are so many occasions where that non-playing group would actually tear the team apart yeah. because they were fuming about what happened it wasn't going to change the opinion of the coach. And I think ultimately that's, that's also a big reminder that sometimes you couldn't necessarily change that opinion no matter what you did. And so that's obviously, that's also another reason why some people do leave clubs and go somewhere else and go and work somewhere else, because you can't change the opinion of somebody that ultimately decides whether you play or not.
0: Something around that sort of consistent improvement and what you're saying about, you know, everyone can learn, everyone can improve is I do wonder, because it's almost to that point about feedback is in sport, it's, Within reason, Saracens are better than top of the championship. It's pretty clear. And actually, you can say that about the teams within the Premiership. When you move into a business world, it becomes harder to objectively say who's better than who. But actually, and so for a management team to understand where their team are in terms of performance, in terms of capability, actually, how can businesses and what should they do to really understand where they are in terms of the capability and quality of their team and actually? how far they can and want to improve it to achieve what they want to achieve.
1: A lot of it depends on money, doesn't it? It's, it's all looking at the bottom line to see whether a team or an organization is effective or not. So that's the, that's the first thing. But then you have to break it down into, okay, well, what, what do we, how do we get to that point? Let's break it down to the process of how we get there. If we're constantly thinking about this big result the whole time, you lose track, you lose sight of, of the day-to-day process that it takes to actually achieve what you want to achieve. If I use the sporting analogy, it was the year I retired and then I went into a, into a role in the backroom staff at Saracens. We'd had obviously, it's a sort of long season, you start in pre-season um, in July and you go right the way through to the end of May. We finished with a, a European Cup final win, two weeks later we had the Premiership final win. And actually when we got back and I was sat in the office with the coach listening to them talk about how was everybody after that Premiership final win after the last game of the season? everybody's great, everybody's on a high because you've been out and a drink together and everybody's celebrating, but four days, five days later, it's almost like a feeling of depression because you're kind of going, well, what next? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important that you have to enjoy that journey of getting there because not everybody's guaranteed of getting that, that trophy. You're not, you're not always guaranteed of, of sealing the deal or of, of making that financial target rightly or wrongly or due to one reason or another. So the fact of, of enjoying that day-to-day process of getting there ultimately will, for me, certainly from my experience, will have a better impact in the long term.
0: I'm interested to come a bit more to, to what you're doing now with, with your a coaching business, Charlie Hodgson Performance, and actually talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about the challenges that that transcend sport and business. And I, I'd be fascinated in the challenges that you see from the clients that you've been working with come up time and time again. What are those most common challenge that you find you get from the the clients that you work with
1: firstly from from an individual point of view it tends to be people requiring help on i suppose quite a broad term of leadership i think no. some of it is people often get thrown into leadership positions without really having the well, one the experience or two the knowledge and so the coaching process to to enable them to be in a better position come that time of promotion when they're almost immediately given this team of people to, to look after and it's mm-hmm. like, well, actually I'm in a better position to be able to do it now. And from a team point of view, I think it is it is similar to the, the international rugby side is this whole idea of team alignment and whether that is due to new faces, old faces, how do you get rid of that anxiety of the people who've been in an organization for a long time who are almost fearful of this new wave of enthusiasm of people coming into the environment and you can almost see a clash of difference, even difference in personality, people who want to just get cracking with projects and some people actually want to sit and think and talk a little more about it. So, so how do you get all those people merging together to, to actually focus on the same thing? And so for me, that's the what the, kind of the one thing is, is a whole around this team alignment. Can we make ourselves basically move from being... Say two or three groups into one really effective group.
0: How do you do that, or what? What are those top bits of advice you give to to your class to help them do that?
1: It's not necessarily advice; it's more a process, which is quite hard to explain over over a podcast. <laughs> but ultimately, it's about the the process is about creating empathy, creating awareness of a different environment, a different team, a different set of people. For example, how do you bring them all together? How do you get them to understand what it's like to be in this department, or how do you get them to understand what it's like to be somebody who's very, very new? And if you think back to when you were first new in the organisation, what was that like? So you, you you're ultimately trying to bring out the best bits of both worlds, and how do you make them all move forwards together? And so it's not necessarily about me giving um, my experience. I will perhaps share some experience, but ultimately it's about for, it's it's them it's them working out themselves, but for us to put them in positions where they
0: where they see that and they be able, they're, they're able to apply it. I know you said it's not the best to explain, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> what are those key steps to you know, to that process? If someone's listening and thinking, I need to to bring my team together, because in you know, take consulting, that's a live issue every time you go to a new project, because mm-hmm. just like you know, when you're bringing together a team, I mean, the England team sounds different, but I imagine the Lions might have been similar, is you're thrown together with a bunch of people you don't know to achieve an outcome in a short period of time. And actually, what is that process that you, as much as you can explain it, or tell me if you can't, of taking people together and and building that cohesion so they do all start at that same position and with that same goal?
1: Okay, so we use the analogy of travel initially. So if I asked you the question, if you were going to travel and go to a different country, how would you act if you go going to a different country? So if that was a question to you, so um, if I was going to answer it for you, if you're a tourist, you think about curiosity, you think about being open-minded. So you immediately get people to you immediately get people to open their minds to what they're about to be faced with, okay? And then we refer to the different departments as as worlds or different countries. Imagine you're stepping across into a country. You're going to France, for example, taking that curiosity and taking that open-mindedness and that respect into France. That's you're going to almost step across into their world. Now I want you to appreciate what it's like in that world right now. So imagine you are. Acting as in the, in the finance department, for example, what are the things that they constantly think about and have to think about, and what do you appreciate about that, and what do they do? So you step out of the marketing, you step into finance. Okay, so and, and you just basically get them to understand and for them to appreciate what is what is good about that, and you kind of move that process on. So finance then step back into marketing, and they go, okay, this is what you have to deal with, and you try and bring them all together, and then you take you bring the strengths out of both, and they both join their join their one their one world their their own world together
0: i really like the question and the the metaphor and i guess is there a part of that which is bringing together i'll try my best to go with the metaphor i'm I'm okay at sports and that's about all i can do (laughs) Uh, but you know say you've got these five people and you you give them the sort of traveling question but actually one is i want to go and be a tourist and see sites one is i'm there for business so i need hotel and an office another one i don't know you might say i'm just there to experience culture and you know eat some food is that an equally big part of this this conversation of how do you bring those people's understanding of each other together to see how they can all get what they want from working together or is that a a different part of it
1: ultimately it's about understanding the best bits from each each area each department so they and understanding the difficulties that other teams may face with regards to a project or whatever it may be. So understanding the difficulties, but understanding their strengths. And then, so then how do we use them as a group to move forward to where we want to get, come and take the best bits of this and the best bits of this and move forward.
0: That's a really interesting point. And it might be the second part of your, your process. So, you, so stop me if it is, but I really like the tourist metaphor because it implies, you know, you're new to somewhere, you need to be receptive to their culture and, and not try and impose yours too much on them. I really like that. The, the next part around that moving forward together is then, okay, I go to Paris, the Paris metro smells and doesn't work very well. Maybe they want to look at changing it. How do
1: you... <laughs> I think the metaphor, you have, just to go back, the metaphor only, only starts and really, and really finishes at the beginning of the process. So yeah. we're, we're talking more, more about this whole idea of curiosity and of around open-mindedness and... Um, and respect for somewhere where you may go. So if you step into a, another department and you start speaking from your own your own point of view, you almost have to go back and then revisit again. It's like, now hold on a second, you're, you're acting as an Englishman in France, for example. Yeah. So we want you to, to Im- embody what it's like to be French.
0: And then you can say the metro. And well. then
1: you can, and then you can start, and then you can start using the French metro. But yeah, <laughs> well, yeah I, I, it's my, it's what I said, not you. Um, and
0: it might have changed since you said the, it, yeah. the time I've been on it, but I guess there is that, and it might be a different session, or it might be a different part of this process. But there then is that, you know, question around going in, and you know, I, I assume junior, but going in and having that um, immersion is key. And then how do you coach the the senior? You know, somewhere maybe your individual clients or your group clients around being receptive to feedback, which I know we touched on before. You know, the business world is, is not great at feedback. And it, when it's given, it's usually a bit soft and it's usually you know, not as to the point as maybe it should be. How do you get that leadership team, the people who run the Metro, to be open to embracing that and understanding why people in their team are saying it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I think ultimately you're relying on this whole sense of humility again and willingness to be to be vulnerable and to admit that perhaps you might make mistakes or you might you might need some help for example because ultimately they're the ones that set the tone aren't they they if they're not willing to take feedback themselves then how do they expect to give it to somebody else and receive it in the, in the way that they want it to be received so if they start delivering feedback in the way that they want it, they want it to be then ultimately they're they they are Behaving them the way that they want to see others behave.
0: I appreciate you weren't there at the time. So if this is second hand or if it's not something you you know about, that's fine. But I the example you gave earlier around the, the sort of change in culture at Saracen seems to really talk to, I guess, that conversation of being having that humility, being receptive to to feedback and saying actually, you know, taking a, a decision that you want to go in a different route and you need to change things to get there. You know, From the conversations you've had with people who were there at the time or the management team, as much as it relates to the business side, what led them to that and actually that process? Because I think that could be a really interesting example to the point you made around having that humility to take on feedback and, and take the journey forwards.
1: Interestingly enough, humility was actually one of the main core values. So they, had, they started with three, not actually through feedback, but well, I suppose you could say through feedback of, of losing and then winning a lot of games. Humility came in the following year through results and actually saying, hold on a second, we need to be humble enough to react to negative performances in the, in the right way. But we also need to be humble enough to accept victory as well and not come across as being arrogant. So it, it kind of gracious and defeat, humble and victory, all that sort of stuff. So. That's where humility came from, having had a, a run of of good results and then getting beaten going, actually, that's a bit of a kick up the backside, really. What do we do about it? And that's where this humi- the whole idea of hum- humility came in.
0: It might be those values, or I know you've, you've written a little bit about this as well. As sort of what are those, for people who are climbing the leadership rungs or you know, leading a company at the moment, what, what are those other values that you recommend that people consider or... or look to implement in their organization to help them drive it forwards
1: i don't know whether i could say what they should or shouldn't be because ultimately each organization is different and people are different and people are driven by different things and people's values are different but i certainly think the values need to reflect uh, the organization as a whole and what and what you want to be seen as and the types of people that you would like working for your organization and are those the types of people that you are Interviewing and bringing into the organization because you see them as as long term candidates, I suppose, so could I say which ones probably not, because ultimately there are so many out there you can choose from a number of them, but until you really sit down and think about what your own individual values are and what the company values are, that's as far as you can go really.
0: that raises an interesting point in itself of actually that sitting down and decide thinking about not deciding, sorry, but understanding who you are because I think that can sometimes be something that people probably don't do as much as they should, or an exercise that can lead to some of the you know, biggest insights about yourself, actually your style. But I'd be interested in your take on that. Is that something that you, know, you give to some of your coaching clients? And if so, what you know, what do they find? Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm always keen to sit down with people at the beginning to work out work out what their story is, because it can unveil a number of values which they may or may not know about. Um, whether that is through really positive experiences through their life or really negative experiences or coming across people that they, that have done things to them or things have happened which really resonate with them and it can unveil these, these, these sorts of values that they're, they're talking about. So therefore, you get a greater understanding of them, but you also understand why they may act in a certain way now because mm-hmm. ultimately it is from from recent or even further past experience.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And the, the impact that those things can have on you and actually yeah, becoming aware of them. I read a fascinating book recently called I Used to Be a Miserable Fuck. Which, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's by an American therapist to, yeah, I'll, I'll send you it. But he, you know, he makes the point that actually, it's targeted very much at men, but I'm sure it's equally applicable to women. A lot of the behavior we have now comes from childhood. And a lot of the problems we have now are from unaddressed things that have happened before that you know it, that we've developed coping mechanisms for, which is what I- it's ultimately where that's,
1: that resonates with me massively through my childhood and through playing professional sport is kind of or are the reasons why, not necessarily now, but certainly in recent times, I've behaved the way I would, because mm. you go, you talk about those coping mechanisms, you do that because you think that's the way, the way forward, but actually you look, you look at yourself and go, really, yeah. is that the right thing? And that's only through having coaching myself where that has been revealed to me almost and made me really sit back and think about it.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, that in itself shows the, the power that this can have because that that self-reflection and that understanding of those coping mechanisms lets you change them. You know, it's, if you should hurt your shoulder, it's pretty obvious and you go to a physio to fix it. But actually that some of those coping mechanisms can be much harder to unearth. And then actually it's not until you do that, you fix them. And I guess the the other chat, the other elements of that and you can tell me different is also the, the role models you see in your organization if you know if your role models in your team or your organization do things in a certain way you learn that as the right way and actually then part of the challenge is making sure you demonstrate those right behaviors like you're talking about before yeah i
1: think it's there's a lot around authenticity isn't there and being able to act in the way that you feel most comfortable with and not try to be somebody you're not but ultimately and understandably you can be swayed by the environment that you're in and until you really step back and you make yourself, I suppose, more self-aware and really think about why you
0: behave the way you behave, you're never really going to know. If this is something you don't want to answer, that's fine. But one of the things that I think would, I'm sure will be interesting for listeners, you know, you made the point that you had coaching and this was a really big thing for you. And I think I've talked to other coaches and I think there is still a bit of a stigma around coaching and that, that mental side of be it sport, be it be it life of just having someone to help you. I think it's getting much, much better. I think there's a lot more around mental health now, but I'd be fascinated what led you to seeking out coaching for yourself, why you did it and you've touched on some of the benefits, but any others that you found from it? I've
1: always seen the benefit of it because I've, I've worked
0: in an environment where you are always immersed in that,
1: that coaching application, really. There's, a, there's always somebody there to speak to and to learn from. And, and yes, you take good things from some people and you... you there's obviously a bit of negativity at times, but you you learn from these people. And it's an opportunity to reflect on, on certain things. Obviously, from a rugby point of view, it was always reflecting on performance, really. So I think that's why I was, I was quite keen just to, to continue it, really, and think, well, actually, I'm, I'm in this world now from a different standpoint. But if I can't speak honestly that I understand why the process works, then I can't really sell it to anybody else. If I, if I say i am never coached myself, then it, it doesn't really come across very, very well. So I almost needed to, needed to do it to prove that it is. It is a good thing.
0: It's interesting that point to hear you say having been in that world because I think you know as an outsider you'd think you know, one view might be actually okay. You get a lot of coaching on your you know, your kicking, your tackling, your passing, but almost it's quite a. I assume it's quite a sort of alpha male environment, quite macho. So actually some might think that going and getting that coaching is that sort of mental coaching is almost more challenging in that sort of environment but it sounds like that's that's not the case from from your perspective which is really interesting to hear
1: i think ultimately people see the benefit of coaching if they are willing to be open to be coached or put themselves in that in that situation i think if you're with somebody who is very much a closed book and has a bit of that fixed mindset then then the chances of them making any of, of you helping them make any changes are much more difficult, because the change has to come from them. It has to come from you as as a coachee. You, you have to be willing to try and experiment and mess up and and stick at it, because making any sort of change takes takes months. And uh, if
0: you if you're not willing to stick at it, then or at least try, then it's never going to work, is it? No, completely. And it, actually your point around how you you got coaching as you were moving out of playing and into to your coaching business. Now it, it brings us onto a, a topic. I, I think so few people see or hear about, but I'm sure there's you know, some really interesting pieces in there, which is actually that transition from professional sport. Cause I think in, if you take football, you know, football players can retire afterwards. Rugby still, yeah, I know you, you meant It's changing, but if you're the second choice hooker for Let's take poor Worcester, we've talked about, or poor Newcastle. You know, Newcastle, such would they don't, but probably going to go down this season. If you're the second choice hooker for them and you're about to retire, Ashley, what are the challenges that players face in that transition? And how have you overcome them? And how do you, what do you advise others who are in that place to help them make as good a start of their next career as they can?
1: The biggest thing is that you are properly institutionalised when you're in a rugby environment. And I don't, if you consider you've come from school at the age of five, you, and you leave school, you join a professional sporting environment like rugby, for example, you could be in that environment for a long period of time where you're so used to being told what to do, where to be, where, what to eat, what to wear, yeah. that you don't have to think for yourself. And then as soon as you finish and you're into the big wide world, <laughs> kind of going, shit, I have to manage my own diary and think about what I'm going to do with my time. So that, for me, was is kind of the biggest shock initially because yeah. you can... yeah. You're so used to having a a team manager tell you where you should be. And like, you just give your passport to him and you turn up to the airport. and (laughs) You're you're giving it back and it's all very, very easy. And you're treated like school, school kids from, 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 for a long time. So then suddenly changing things up. And that is a, that's certainly a big point of transition. But I suppose the, the biggest impact really is, is more around finance, to be honest, and whether people are in a position to have some sort of security when they finish. I was fortunate that I played for a long period of time and, and I earned well enough to be able to put some money aside. But there are also players that don't have that ability to do that. And mm-hmm. So that whole transition piece of of worrying about what next, but also the financial implications are, are much greater.
0: Is that something that players do or should consider? How do you, it sounds like, and you know, tell me if is wrong. it almost sounds like there's a Preparing to leave rugby before you've, you know, a good few years before you've left to, like you say, be able to put some money away. And I think, how, how important is that understanding that rugby is not forever and preparing for it to, to ease that transition?
1: It's much bigger now. Actually, the, the awareness nowadays and certainly through the Players Association is much, much greater. I think Saracens are one of the leaders in all the clubs about what they do. I mean, it's, it's been in the press recently about Nigel Ray helping out players with their own business interests. Uh, because it's important because because yeah. i mean perhaps the players now at the top of the game may be able to retire in a few years time and have plenty of time to think about what they're going to do next <laughs> um, but there's still going to be those players who don't who don't have that luxury and um, it's massively important that that players do consider what next that ultimately is the hardest the hardest thing to do because you're going from a, a job which is ultimately your hobby and you can't beat that buzz that you get the weekend to then try to find something else that gives you the same buzz, and I'm still yet to find it.
0: <laughs> do you still do you still play sort of amateur level? No, no I don't you... at all. Do you know, I've Cold not know? I've not put
1: my boots on since my last ever game.
0: Really, not even a charity game. Or no.
1: A... I mean, I, I got beaten up enough when I was playing, so <laughs> the need for me or the want to get beaten up again is not is not that great at the moment. And plus, my body's in bits, so I probably couldn't run further than fifty meters without pulling my car, So. <laughs> I, um, it's quite nice to step away. I do, I do some coaching stuff now. So that's kind of where I get my enjoyment, being back on the field.
0: The other side of you know, that transition piece, and you, obviously the finance is key, because if you've got the money, actually it doesn't matter if you go on to do something else. But you, know, you made that point that in a team, you're institutionalized. And you know, a lot of the, like you talked about earlier, was feedback, very different. And actually, how can players now be starting to get that sort of understanding of what, life outside of rugby is like before they leave because i can only imagine that if you've been used to being the being the starting 10 being on the team sheet having someone take your passport for you etc you know give you your kit there's quite all of those are massive shifts and then suddenly you've got to go and find a job and explain what your transferable skills are you know it's just an example how can players actually start to do that so that it's not so much of a shock when suddenly you do hang your boots up and think right what do i do now Well,
1: as I say, through the support of the clubs and through the Players Association, there are now opportunities that are opened up for players for you to work out through the player managers that they have. They help develop their own sort of profile and whether that's CV, whether that's interview skills, whether that's getting themselves into a trade, whether that's doing a university degree, work experience, whatever it may be, there are opportunities out there which are far greater than they ever have been. But the biggest thing I suppose I would say is, is one to, if anything, to rule things out just to go and try, uh, and that is something I didn't do, but I would certainly recommend people just going and spending time with organizations and working out actually what, what is it that they do? Does this interest me in any, in any way? I guess the difficulty there lies in the sense that you can only really get a day a week yeah. to actually go and see and go and work with, within an office environment, It's just not really enough to get your teeth into anything. They're, they're hardly gonna give you anything that is worthwhile other than making a few cups of coffee, so you, 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 it's very difficult to really see the positives and negatives of that. But if you start it young enough, then at least if there is something that grabs your attention, and then you've got time to go on apprenticeship. I don't know, be mentored through the business. So when you've actually finished playing rugby, you've you've got a brilliant link with a, with an organisation. They understand you. You've, as I say, you can spend longer in there. They're more likely to give you a bit more, and then you, you've got an opportunity at the end of it.
0: That might be the answer to this next question, but for people who are listening to this who are, say, running consulting firms or running other businesses, actually, what can they do to embrace this this talent pool? And actually, how can they help players come sort of make that transition?
1: I guess it's, it's purely about having an open mind again and ultimately providing opportunities for people just to come in and, and try. There doesn't have to be any sort of formality in it, but at the same time, if there is a greater commitment on both sides then the
0: long-term benefits were much greater i think is there for the players you know who have transitioned and who are now having successful business careers is it the bits you've highlighted already around that sort of open-mindedness and that preparation that have led to that or is there anything else that if you look at some of those who have been most successful in that transition that they did differently from say the norm
1: i think the ones that have have probably been mo- most successful immediately are the ones that have been most prepared and have spent time doing it. Al Hargreaves and Chris Wiles, who created the Wolfpack Lager, they started that as they were still playing. They weren't ready to know how well it would go, but they were preparing themselves for the, after- the afterlife. And they, they put themselves in a situation where they had that decision to make when they came to the end of a rugby career. Unfortunately for them, they're actually they they're going really well now, and it's brilliant to see. But it's because they were prepared, and I think ultimately it's it's down to preparation and down to just taking some time out to think about what next.
0: Yeah, no, really, really good advice. So, last two questions, and these are two questions that I ask all my guests. But given your uh, rugby career, I might tweak one of them slightly. So, the first one is books and. I'm a, a big reader of books. I think you, you, know, you mentioned some studies there. I think you can get a lot from from reading and hearing how people have done it before or hearing research that others have done. And I'd be fascinated, you can take this in whatever direction you want, is what is the book or books you found yourself recommending or gifting most often to people?
1: I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to to anybody really, other than I find it pretty an inspiring story. It's, it's a book called The Forgotten Highlander. And it's... I don't know if you've read it. It's no? a guy called Alistair, if I can pronounce his Scottish name, Urquhart, and he was a prisoner of war in the Second World War in, in Japan, and the resilience that he shows to survive is ridiculous. I've never read anything like it. It's an easy, it's a very easy read, and yeah, if you ever want to, if you ever want to read something around resilience, then this is this is your man. He he goes through every possible scenario, thinks he's fine, and then he's not. I think he talks about it in the book he's still being looked at for topical medicine and stuff because he's got that much wrong with him but somehow came out the other side surviving what one of the most the biggest atrocities ever so this whole idea of resilience and how to deal with it this guy's got it in spades so for me i i, I kind of like uh like referring to that one
0: amazing well it's not one i've come across before but i will I'll put it firstly, I'll put it in the show notes so people can find it, and I'll, I'll definitely check it out. So uh, it reminds me of uh, a book called Have you heard of Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Heard it, I haven't read it. Yeah, uh, so similar. Very. It sounds very similar. So it's his story of life. He's a psychologist, and it's his story of life in a concentration camp. And sort of similar, that power of resilience and how he survived the fortune that um, led to that. Brilliant read. So another another book I'd recommend. And then the the very last question. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm going to tweak this slightly because I I usually ask my guests about their advice for people, their c- consultants. But I think given your your rugby career and your experience in sport and what we've talked about a few times of actually how the elements of sport transcend sport and business, I'd be fascinated in your answer for this for for rugby and actually young players or players now. And so the question is, it's a three parter, and you have three people in front of you. One is someone who's just starting their career. So take that as you decide the level, but I imagine somebody who's just joined the sort of first team squad promoted from the academy. The second is someone who's, let's say, halfway through their playing career, 25, 26. And then the third person would be someone who is similar to where you were, looking at what they do next. And, and the, the question is, quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them?
1: Uh, well, for the, for the younger one, and I suppose this kind of matches to where I'm at, really, with state of business as well in a new in a new world is is to be patient to accept that it takes time which at times is quite hard but certainly for the for the for that generation is understand that opportunities will come and if you work hard enough you will get there so that's the patience mid term, don't rest on your laurels i think and i suppose that could be applied anywhere really couldn't it i think um Don't accept that you're there and you've made it. Constantly strive for what next. Think about how do you make yourself better? As a point of view, how do you make your organisation better? And the sooner you stop thinking about that, the sooner you're likely going to go downhill. And the final piece for the the old one is... On the sport
0: well so i i uh, it's more of a guide so if if there's a business example that's better then use that i just more that person who's about to they've got that decision point of you know, it's time to so in a sporting context it's time to move on in a business context it might be someone who's taken that step up to a different you know then a leadership role and are doing something different but is that transition i suppose
1: point? i'd say don't forget where you've come from and just because you're now in a different position it doesn't mean that you weren't once in those lower positions and the more that you can help these people out and the more that you can be accessible to these people, the better it will be for you and f- and certainly for them because it will enable their careers to develop at a much better rate than knots so if you've got advice and you're willing to open yourself up to that, to those people. If you sit in your ivory tower and close your door, then it's never going to work. So be accessible, be open-minded and and and, and talk to people.
0: Brilliant, Charlie. I think that's a really nice place to finish. So thank you very much for this. If anyone listening wants to find out more about what you're doing now with Charlie Hodgson Performance, get in touch, potentially to talk to you about coaching for either themselves or their team, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? They can contact me,
1: uh, Charlie, at charliehodgsonperformance.com. They can contact business partner Magali, M-A-G-A-L-I, at charliehodgsonperformance.com
0: fantastic well i'll put links to i'll put both your emails and a link to the website in the show notes so anyone who wants to go and find it it's there they don't have to keep listening back to our interview to write it down and all that's left to say is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week cool thank you very much cheers Charlie. cheers I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.